come now to the reading of Holy Scripture. We'll be reading from the first Scripture reading from Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 through 17. This is found on page 962 in the Bibles in front of you. Please rise as we honor God and His infallible Word by standing together to, to listen. Matthew chapter 4, beginning in verse 12. Now when he, that is Jesus, heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Congregation, hear the word of the Lord. To the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit, then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise, for you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings, in whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Amen. So far the reading of God's word. Let's ask for his help now. Let's pray. 
Our Father, we do thank you for the gift of your word, your holy word that uh, shatters the hardest heart and gives sight to the blind. Oh Lord, we pray that through your word this morning we might see Jesus Christ and him crucified. We pray that we might be built up in the assurance of faith in the gospel again this day. Oh Lord, send your spirit now. Open our hearts to you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, brothers and sisters, it's no secret that this world is full of corruption. You don't have to look too far to find it. Just turn the news on. Read a history book. You'll see that there's corruption everywhere. And what do we do when we find corruption? Do we try to bargain with it, try to blackmail, try to get in and use corruption? What do we do? Do we turn a blind eye to it? Do we go along with the lies? Is it just too much work for us to deal with this corruption? Is it worth it? Or do we call ourselves, do we call others to repent and stop with all the lying and all the corruption? It's what Martin Luther did. And he was shocked by the corruption of the church there in the Middle Ages. He nailed the 95 theses to the door of the Wittenberg Castle Church there in 1517. He saw that the church had taken the gospel and hidden it behind all these ceremonies, all these man-made institutions. And it did away with real heart repentance. It did away with the work of Jesus There was corruption. And his first thesis reads, have you read this before? When our Lord and Master, Jesus Christ, said, repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. We don't get past repentance in this life. Every day is another day of repentance. And the Lord used that simple call to repent, to ignite a fire that spread across Europe and across the world with the gospel. People had their world lit on fire. The corruption of the church was being burned up and the gospel was shining brightly as we celebrated the mercy of Jesus Christ and the purity of his sacrifice with that simple call to repent. King David had corruption in his life, didn't he? And he had his world set on fire by a simple call to repent. He was wallowing in serious sin, deadly sin, but the Lord sent a prophet to him to call him to repent. And with that simple but bold call, David was jolted awake from sin and his heart was set on fire for serving the Lord. He was a man after God's own heart, wasn't he? You know, brothers and sisters, there's a lot of corruption in this world. And if we're honest with ourselves and with the Lord, we know that there's still plenty of corruption in our own hearts that we have to deal with. There's probably areas in our lives that if we're honest, we've turned a blind eye to. We've bargained with. God calls us here in this text. He comes to us in Psalm 51 like a hammer to the door of the Wittenberg Chapel. And he says, the time has come to repent of your sins and believe the good news that Jesus saves. 
Because, brothers and sisters, you and I are radical sinners, but God is radically merciful. And in Jesus Christ, God is able to radically transform repentant sinners and a repentant world. We'll look at this in three points this morning. First, we'll look at our radical relationship with sin. Secondly, we'll look at what radical repentance looks like in the Christian life. And then finally, I want us to look at what it would be for the world to be radically recreated through repentance and the gospel. It's no secret King David had a serious problem with sin. We read the title of the psalm, and we know that it's written about the episode with Bathsheba and Uriah the Hittite, and we remember what happened then. Instead of leading the army into war like David should have been, he was home relaxing while his men were risking their life, and he's enjoying life. He noticed a beautiful woman named Bathsheba, and he decided he would take her. He was the king, and he could do whatever he wanted. It didn't matter that she was somebody else's wife. He coveted her. And then she got pregnant, and David decided to try to cover his tracks. And he had her husband Uriah come home, and Uriah refused to go home and relax with his wife. And so David had to think of another plan. He sent Uriah to the front lines and arranged for his death. You see, David wasn't only an adulterer. He was a murderer, and he was a coveter. And eventually... God sent Nathan the prophet in to David to rebuke him and say, David, you are the man. You need to repent of your sin. Let this corruption go. Of course, David did repent. He was broke down. The whole episode opened David's eyes to who he was at the bottom of it all. He was radically depraved. When David was brought to a knowledge of how bad his sin was, it broke him. He said, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. He calls on God for mercy. And the reason he asks for mercy isn't based on anything in himself. It's not, oh, I'm the king. Oh, I haven't done X, Y, or Z. No, he says, based on your loving kindness. Based on your mercy, have mercy on me. Forgive me. It's all because of God that he could go and plea. And in verse 3, David calls to mind his sins. He's not trying to build himself up. He's saying that they're always haunting him. They're like, if he's trying to go to God, it's as if gargoyles are guarding the hallway. It's scary. His sins are always calling his name, saying, stay back, don't come. My sins are ever before me. They're right in front of me. And haven't we felt that before? The devil tries to trick us into going to the throne of grace, seeking the Lord's mercy. He calls to mind sins, and it's as if a flaming sword is guarding your way back to God, guarding your way back to forgiveness and grace. How can I darken the doors of a church? Many people have thought this. They've been haunted by their sins. And the dread of God falls on David because of his sins. Everything else looks puny next to his sins against God. In verse 4, David's saying that he's totally guilty of whatever God, and whatever God decides to do to him as punishment, 
is obviously reasonable. No matter how harsh it is, he deserves the penalty. You could paraphrase the verse against you. You especially have I sinned and done evil before your eyes. What can I say for myself? I'm speechless. I have no excuse. You're righteous about whatever you say. I have no defense. I can't blame you when you judge me. Throw the book at me. That's what he's saying. There's no defense, no excuses. I'm guilty. And as David reflects on on his sins, he realizes that this is just the tip of the iceberg. I mean, this is just him lashing out, but it's who he always was. It wasn't a one-off mistake. He says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. I was born in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. David's saying from the moment he came out of the womb, he was already a sinner. He says, well, hold on. It's actually worse than that. The moment I was conceived, I was already in sin. I was a sinner. He's not just saying he believes in life at conception. He's saying the moment the sperm fertilized the egg and he was a zygote, he was already in sin. That is radical, brothers and sisters. That from the very moment of conception, we already have a moral life. And it's already rotten to the core. We're all conceived in sin, just like David. One way of thinking about it is if you're pulling water out of a well, and you pour that water into glasses, and that water was poisoned at the source, every single glass of water is going to be tainted. And brothers and sisters, Adam is the well that we're all drawn from. And each and every one of us is radically tainted with sin. Everybody dies because everybody has sin in their life. We need radical repentance because we have radical sin at the root of who we are. We've been conceived in sin. And David knows that the sin clings to everything about him, and he's so corrupt, and he understands God made him for being more than just corrupt and a sinner and wallowing in sin. And he explains, I need radical repentance, God. Please grant this. Just after he confesses his own innate sinfulness in the womb of his mother, what does he say in verse 6? God delights in what? God delights in truth in the inward parts, and that God has been teaching him wisdom in his secret heart. God's been writing his law on David's heart. And he knows that his heart is ruined by sin. And he calls on God, create in me a clean heart, O God, in verse 10. David is saying, radically reconstitute me. Radically remake me, God. Grant me redemption. Grant me repentance at the core of my being. And he's echoing the the creative work of God in Genesis chapter 1 here when he's talking about creating a new heart. That's how radical the work, the, the overhaul needs to be. He's not just repenting of a few bad decisions that he made in the heat of the moment. He's repenting of his very identity as a human being. I repent of everything I am. Burn it all up, Lord. You know, too often, when we talk about repentance, we stop at outward behavior modification. And we should repent of behavior. We should stop what we're doing and do right. 
But repentance goes so much deeper than that. David's not just saying, let me stop doing X, Y, or Z. And David should repent of murder and adultery. But that's not where repentance stops for us. We need to be put off from the old man of the flesh and put into the Spirit of God. Because a bad tree will bear bad fruit. We need our hearts to be washed whiter than snow. We need everything about us to change. We need repentance at the core of who we are. We need a new heart. We need to be born again. And David repudiates this idea that we can just change what we're doing, and that changes everything. That somehow will make us acceptable to God. He says in verses 16 and 17, You will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. David's saying, if all you wanted was me to slaughter some sheep, I could do it. I'm the king. He's got all kinds of money. He could just go down and buy some sheep, sacrifice them, end the story. The core problem with David is internal. Yes, he has external symptoms of this problem. Yes, they're serious symptoms. But the core problem is in his heart. And just going out and sacrificing something, that is not going to fix his heart. You could imagine David in his backslidden state saying something like this to God. Look, just tell me how much this sin with Bathsheba is going to cost. Tell me how many sacrifices Uriah is going to cost me. Let religion, Lord, let religion become a series of ceremonies that cover whatever I do outwardly, and I'll pay whatever the cost is to get blessed. But don't go poking around in my heart. Don't go trying to actually change who I am. Let me get my way and bribe you off. Something that attracts us as human beings to that sort of system. It's everywhere around us, isn't it? Outward performance-based outlook on life and repentance. It's easy to track. But it's just the tip of the iceberg. Life is always bubbling up to the surface, isn't it? From the heart come the words of the mouth, says Jesus. What's underneath all that filth that keeps bumbling up? Don't you think the source of all that filth needs to be addressed? Think of what your relationships would look like if you were only concerned with outward shows of affection and dedication. We'd all be fake plastic people. We'd just be checking the boxes. We'd be missing the heart of life. God wants a transformed life. The sacrificial system was good, but it could become, in the minds of the people, just another way of checking boxes and paying off God so we could continue in our corruption and sin. And when that's all that religion is, brothers and sisters, it's not much different than a glorified toll booth. That's really all it is. Toll booth religion is interested in paying God off so we can get back to driving the way we want to drive. Don't tell me what to do. I'll pay you off. Just let me do what I want. And we'll figure it out at the end. It's a sad way to live, and yet it afflicts so many. The problem is our heart. Our heart needs to be addressed. A good tree will bear good fruit. We need to not only repent of outward sins, we need to repent of our hearts. And that call to radical repentance from Nathan 
wrecked David's pride. It brought him to his knees. And from that broken heart, he found healing in God's grace and mercy as God restored the joy of his salvation. David vowed to sing aloud of God's righteousness, and he said that his mouth would declare God's praises. So different from what David had been doing. It's symbolic of a life totally on fire for the Lord. Right Here's a king who was corrupt, sinning away, trying to get life his own way. And now he's writing poetry about God's grace in his life. Now he wants to sing for joy about the God of his salvation. What a transformation. What a transformation. It was God's kindness that led him to repentance. And you know, David had his life set on fire by that simple call to repent. But he didn't want to keep that fire to himself, did he? He wanted to see it spread. He wanted to see the corruption of the world burned up and radically recreated. He wanted to see the new creation recreated by the fire of the Lord. That's a really interesting turn in this psalm that often I think we can overlook. You know, David knows he wasn't made for wallowing in sin. So why would his neighbors be made for wallowing in sin? Why would he assume that they're just made for corruption and that's it? God wrote his law on David's secret heart in the hidden place, and now David wants to declare God's will in the public square. Look at verse 13. This has always puzzled me. David is saying that if God pardons him and grants him repentance, then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. It's like, you know, is David just the pot calling the kettle black here? You think about, what, what has David done? He's been an awful sinner. I mean, he sinned like crazy. And imagine the chutzpah of him going up to another sinner and saying, let me tell you a thing or two about righteous living. Let me tell you a thing or two about living for the Lord. I mean, this guy has committed sins so bad, he would be like on all the tabloids in the supermarket. That's the level of sin. And he's going to go out teaching people about righteous living. Brothers and sisters, isn't that what often paralyzes us when we have to go testify to our neighbors, the people who know us? They got our number. They know everything we've ever done. And they can call it right up to mind. And they'll remind you. We all want to see the fire of repentance spread. But that guilt, that shame of sins past, that can paralyze God's people. It can create a powerless Christian. Talking to strangers, that's wonderful. But in some ways, that's easier than talking to family members, talking to the people you grew up with. That's, that's hard. That's nerve-wracking. Let me tell you about righteous living. Brothers and sisters, we're called to have that conversation, but we're not called to have it from a place of pride and scorn. It comes from a place of humility, like what David is saying. He's been... Tossed, he's a, he's a broken-hearted man. Right? He's contrite before the Lord. Humility and repentance is the attitude we're to have when we teach others the way. David is saying, I'm a sinner like you, and everybody knows it, but God has remade me. God has forgiven my sins, even my sins. God is my hope, and God is teaching me, even me with all my faults, and everybody knows them, how to live 
like he wants me to. That's a world of difference from the pot calling the kettle black. It's actually a mark of somebody who's living by grace, who's living by faith in the gospel, that Jesus Christ has paid for all his sins. And it's not about his performance. It's about what Jesus did. The gospel frees David to get outside his own sense of shame and paralyzing guilt and call sinners to repent, to teach them God's ways, to be transformed. And David doesn't just want his neighbors to have their hearts transformed. He wants the whole world transformed by the grace of God. Look at how the psalm ends. This is so interesting. The psalm ends in verses 18 and 19. David's been dealing with his heart, this internal struggle, this need for repentance at the core of his being. And then how does the psalm end? Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then will bowls be uh, offered on your altar. I mean, that's jarring. David's been dealing with his heart the whole time, and now he's talking about a city being built. What's going on with that turn there? Have you caught this before? If we understand what David's doing, it makes perfect sense. Jerusalem was the place where David had moved the capital of Israel. And Jerusalem was symbolically pointing to the kingdom of God, the city of God. When David asks God to build the walls of Jerusalem, he's asking God to bring the heavenly kingdom here to earth where everybody lives in perfect peace and harmony. Evil is burned away and righteousness reigns. And we all sing of God's grace for eternity. The corruption of sin is done away with. He's asking God, who knows he's a- because he knows he's able to have mercy on his sin, to transform this old sinful world into a world that loves God and is protected from sin. That's why we need the walls, right? They protect us from sin. That's part of what the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices there in verse 19 are pointing to. In that day, our whole lives will be on fire for the Lord. Everything will be praising God's name. A burnt offering was symbolic of the offerer giving giving the Lord his whole life. That's why the whole uh, animal was burned up with fire saying, I'm holding nothing back, Lord. It's the opposite of tollbooth religion, saying, take my heart, take all of me. I want to repent of everything. Even more radical than our relationship to sin as fallen human beings is, our relationship to the Lord is to take every part of us and light us on fire for him. That's what the kingdom of God looks like in this world. It looks like people repenting of their sins and giving their hearts to Jesus Christ because of his grace. You know, when I look out at the world, I think there's, uh, there's a lot of work to do, isn't there? Still see corruption everywhere. Loneliness is an epidemic. Drug overdoses. Depression. Violence, wars, rumors of wars. Corruption is everywhere. But Jesus Christ has come. And he came preaching the kingdom. He said, repent. The kingdom of God is at hand. And he lit the fire 
that's still burning. The gospel is still going strong. And he's not asking us for halfway repentance. He's not asking us to change X, Y, or Z. He's saying, you must be born again. You need to find your all in me. You need to abandon all hope of justifying yourself, of trying to argue your way into God's good graces. You need to come humbly to the one who saves sinners. The good news, brothers and sisters, is that God heard David's plea for mercy. And he sent Jesus Christ. Jesus is the righteousness of God. And Jesus has been merciful to us at the cross. What did he say as he hung there on the tree? He said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He offers us grace upon grace. His grace is never-ending. Anyone who comes to him, he shall by no means cast out. Trust in him. Look to him, all the ends of the earth, you who are dwelling in darkness. He is the great light. He is the mercy of God. And no sin is too great for him to forgive. Give up on yourself and put your trust and hope for life and death in Jesus Christ's death that gives life. Amen. Let us pray. O Father, make us whiter than snow by the blood of Jesus Christ. Cleanse us from every sin. Atone for every wrong that we've ever done, Lord. We repent of everything that we are. We give it all to you, Lord Jesus. To you be all the glory for so great a salvation. Help us, O Lord, to be thankful people people who live in the shadow of the cross. O Lord, be with us this week by your Holy Spirit and empower us to teach others the good news that Jesus saves. We pray this in his name. Amen.